moments too, and let's not forget that the numbers came, thank you, thank you, Dad, that the numbers came after the writing of the document. And so the Romans 2, the big number 2 with all the little numbers, they were added later. And we've been talking about God at work and or, or what idolatrous cultures were like, or as this part of Romans is about the holiness of God and the problem of our past. And so let me let me just remind you here of what I've got with um, with uh, Romans two. Just and of course it reset. Okay, so right at the end of Romans one, this is where we were, verses twenty nine and thirty. 29 to 31, their lives, this is an adulterous culture, their lives became full of every kind of wickedness, sin, greed, hate, murder, quarreling, deception, malicious behavior, and of course the one I spent a long time pointing out that doesn't feel like it belongs in the list, but it does, gossip. They're backstabbers, haters of God, insolent, proud, boastful, and they invent new ways of sinning, and they disobey their parents. Doesn't gossip and disobey your parents seem out of place there? But it's part of what a culture does when its relationships with God are bad. They refuse to understand, break their promises, are heartless, and have no mercy. So the question is, if that's what an idolatrous culture ends up like or is like, can God work in an idolatrous culture? That's one of the major questions that I have for you. What do you think? Yes? No? Can God work in that? Yes. It's a trick question. There are no non-idolatrous cultures. We all have a problem with it, and so we all have some aspect of this life or this, this sin list involved in our thing. And so we have to understand that God is at work in the midst of those things, trying to correct relationships. And so here it is. But, but let's say you're living in an idolatrous culture and you have the word of God or you have the law, or as I'll refer to the rest of the sermon, the ten, right? Because you know what I'm talking about, the ten commandments. But what if you live in a culture like this and you have that? What do you end up doing? Or what is the danger of being a, a person who sins in that spot? Let's read. This is our text for today, Romans 2, 1 through 11. You may think that you can condemn such people, but you're just as bad, and you have no excuse. When you say they are wicked and should be punished, you're condemning yourself, for you judge others who do the very same things. We know that God, in his justice, will punish anyone who does such things. Since you judge others for doing these things, why do you think you can avoid God's judgment when you do the same things? Don't you see how wonderfully kind, tolerant, and patient God is with you? Doesn't this mean nothing to you? Doesn't this mean anything to you? Can't you see that his kindness is intended to turn you from your sin? But because you are stubborn and refuse to turn from your sin, you are storing up a terrible punishment for yourself. 
For day of anger is coming when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will judge everyone according to what they've done. He will give eternal life to those who keep on doing, seeking after glory and honor and the immortality that God offers. But he will pour out his anger and wrath on those who live for themselves, who refuse to obey the truth and instead live lives of wickedness. There will be trouble and calamity for everyone who keeps on doing what is evil, for the Jews first and also the Gentiles. But there will be glory and honor and peace for the God of for all who do good, for the Jew first and also for the Gentile. For God does not show favoritism. So let's get right into this working it out here. Right here we have, uh, how do you work out a real life example of the prodigal son story? Okay, remember the prodigal son story in Luke? You have a father, he's got a couple of sons, and the younger one says to his dad, I don't want any part of you. I want the money that's going to come when you die. Give it to me, and I'm out of here. And he goes off, and he blows it because he doesn't know how to deal with money, and he hasn't learned that yet, or, or whatever it is, or maybe he's just wicked and evil and all this stuff. But in the midst of the lowest part of his life, he comes to comes to feeding pigs, and he starts to look after the stuff that the, that the pigs are eating and thinking, that looks pretty good to me. Now, my son has been has worked for quite some time at the the food bank, and what they do with the food that they can't give away is they give it to the pig farmers. Right? The food they can't give away goes to the pigs. I want you to understand this, that he's giving the pigs this stuff you can't give away and thinking, that looks pretty good. That's a low spot in your life. Now, in this moment, he looks up and he goes, you know, even the slaves in my dad's house are treated better than I'm being treated right now. I'll go back. And when he comes back, his father meets him and forgives him and puts a ring on his thing and throws a party. But the, but the flip side of this is the son who has stayed is angry and mad and doesn't do it. Both the sons throw away or dishonor their father, the father in the story, by not living into the life that was given to them at some point. Both of them, the oldest son throws away and dishonors his father's inheritance and all that stuff by not accepting his father's forgiveness of the other. How do we deal with this? Who ends up forgiven? Who ends up living like his father in this? The first son. It's very simple. Actually, in a lot of ways, there's another parable where, where Jesus says there's a father who has two sons, and he goes to the first one and says, go work in the field today. And the son says, no, I'm not gonna. But then he does. And he goes to the second one and he says, go work in the field today. And the son says, I will, but doesn't. Do you see that that is the prodigal son story then fleshed out to show us this thing? But here we are. What we don't understand is that in the Church of Rome, there's a racial divide going on that has gone on within Christianity almost from the very beginning. Now, in Antioch, 
It was the Jewish converts that said to the non-Jewish converts, you're second class, we don't need you, you have to look like us to be part of it. And Paul and Peter get into it over that. Because if God has created a new family and he's brought everybody into the family and the family starts saying, well, but you don't look right, then, then it dishonors the work of the father. But in Rome, they've got the other side going on. See, Rome has this history of expelling the Jews from time to time. And at the time of the Romans' letter, the Jews were just starting to come back into the Rome. The Jewish converts were just starting to come back. And the Roman church had been doing just fine without them. But they're troublemakers in Rome, right? That's... Those, those Jewish people, they're, they're problematic, and they don't even believe in our gods. See, one of the things, there's this underwriting current uh, within the Roman culture that we don't understand really. They thought that they ruled the world because of their exceeding piety to their gods. Because they were so ad adherent to their religion, their God had give them a given them authority over the whole world. And even in amongst that thing, the Jews had sort of been amongst them and, you know, they tried to make them understand that you're supposed to worship our gods. In fact, in Ephesus, Paul is stoned over something like this, like great is Diana of the Ephesians, that what happens is, is you're not worshiping our gods and so you're, you're not with us. And the reason we're ruling the world is because we're all together in this, but you're not part of us. And they finally sort of had given the Jews sort of a pass on it and said, look, it's so much trouble. They won't convert. We'd have to wipe them out. We'll sort of give them this thing if they don't cause trouble. So when the Jews keep getting kicked out of Rome, there's this spot where we as a church need to remember that we ourselves still divide ourselves in Christianity like we're the real ones, but those ones over there, they're not real, when we don't know. Let me, let me make that very clear. I had a question years ago about um, some people that were uh, in a cult, about whether they were believers or not, and, and my answer to that at the time was, the teachings of the cult are not Christianity. Okay, let me say that very clearly. The teachings of the cult are not Christianity. But you don't know what individuals believe in certain circumstances. That there might be people over there. And matter of fact, Jesus would say, I've got people in other sheep pens that, that you don't know anything about. Now, that doesn't mean the sheep pen has been cleaned properly and has full understanding. Because what do you do when you've got the Ten? Do, when you've got the Ten Commandments in you, do you then carry it around and go, but you don't have the Ten, but you don't have the Ten, right? I, got, I even broke out my bony finger of indignation for you. <laughs> No. See, even the Jews had been entrusted with the ten, with the law. They hadn't been given the ten. 
They didn't, they didn't trust it to keep it so that God's work in them and following it, them could be a light to the nations and other people could see it and go, we want to live like that. We don't want to live like the sin list at the end of Romans 1. We want to do it this other way. But the Jews thought that because they had the 10, that they didn't have a past. What do you do with the holiness of God and you've got a past. I hate to tell you this. There isn't any of us here that don't have one. And so what the, the text is talking about is what do you do when you've got a past and somebody else has a past and God seeks to redeem all of you? This is really sort of one of those gospel moments. And so here, what do we do with this? Here's another story from Jesus. Actually, I was handing out our devotional material, and it's got a picture on the front of it. Angry Jesus writing on the ground. I, I don't know. I said this over here. I don't know that I remember seeing many paintings with an angry Jesus on them. Look at your little devotions that I handed out this morning. You've seen an angry Jesus. What he's doing there is some people with the ten have come to him with somebody who's broken it. And they've thrown her on the ground and said, she's an adulterer. We've caught her in the very act. She's broken the ten. The law says we get to condemn her. Do you see that angry Jesus there? What do you think about that? He's writing, many people say he leans down on the ground and starts writing the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not, thou shalt not, all this stuff. Here's the story. What do you do when you're the Jews of the ancient world or the Christians of the modern world? And you start saying, because we've got the law, we know what's right and you're the sinners. And you forget that you, need a, that you need a Savior too. The whole reason the law was given is so that we would know that we needed a Savior. Jesus is the only one around the woman who has the right and standing to throw a stone. And he doesn't. None of the other people have a right to throw a stone because they all have pasts. And what does the holiness of God do when we have a past? It seeks to justify God's judgment and that we need a Savior. That's what the law does. It justifies God. It doesn't justify us. It was never meant to do that. If it was meant to do that, we wouldn't have needed Jesus, and Jesus wouldn't have had to come and jump through what I would call some pretty horrific hoops for us. Now, so what do we do when we've got a problem of the past and we all have one with this text? Because we all have one. Look, maybe you've not killed anybody. Maybe you're not heartless, ruthless, and without mercy. Maybe you're not. I don't know what goes on inside your heart. Maybe you've only gossiped. Or maybe you didn't honor your parents just right. Those are in the list too. Maybe you argue and you're just argumentative because you like being argumentative. 
the problem is that you've got a past and you need a savior. So what does the Christian do? What is the, the believer response? What is the Jewish, what was the Jewish culture response? And then always called a response out of that. It's simple. Okay. Here's my old Testament little piece of it. Other than just mentioning the 10 commandments, Micah 6, 8. Hear, O man, what does the Lord require of you? To do justice. Now, in the in the in the, in the Hebrew world, to do justice was to vindicate the downtrodden. They didn't have a justice system the way that our justice system was, where you had a prosecutor that took care of that thing, and a police force that came out and got people and then charged them. Their their, their system was based essentially on a judge with two people, one feeling they're wronged and the other feeling they're wronged for doing what they thought was right. And the judge was supposed to hear that and solved the problem. And when he did that and vindicated the downtrodden and punished evil, he had righteous judgment, which meant that he was at peace and at one with the covenant. To do justice, to vindicate the downtrodden, to love mercy, to love mercy, to care for those who have a need or are hurting. I, I love this statement. I heard it once from a special ed teacher that, that said something about, you know, somebody was saying, well, these are special needs kids. And the special ed teacher said, there are no non-special needs kids. Every kid has some needs. Every one of us, there are none of us that don't need a savior. We all need a savior. All of us are hurting all of us have failed. All of us need a savior. There aren't, there's no, not one that doesn't. To love mercy and to walk humbly, humbly with your God. Do you know what it means to walk humbly with your God? It means like Moses walking up to the burning bush, take off your sandals. You're on holy ground. When you're walking with your Lord, wherever you go is holy ground. Be aware that holiness stands next to you. Holiness abides within your heart, even if your heart isn't fully converted yet. It abides there. Everywhere you go, the attitude of take your sandals off, you're on holy ground is right there. We don't get... To point the bony finger of indignation, we don't get to go like this. I remember doing this specifically as a kid, and 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 you see it even in the garden text. So I was getting in trouble for something, and I said, "But what about Kevin, my brother?" <laughs> and my whole goal, although I didn't know it at the time, my whole goal was to get the punishment off of me and onto somebody else, right? God's walking in the garden and there's Eve. What have you done? Well, what about Adam? And he goes, talks to Adam. But what about the serpent, right? It's a dodge that the, our text today essentially says God isn't fooled. Like he doesn't need a tattletale. He actually knows what they did. And what we did. Isn't that 
you can't confuse him by misdirection. I just want to get that out there, that he's not misdirected, right? He, that's what the text today says, that, that he doesn't excuse sin. He forgives hurting people that come in need of a Savior, that know they need the Savior. And so what do we do with this text? What do we do with our culture that has problems, that leads us to feel like we can get away with certain things? that gives us permission to do what's evil, or as the previous text said, applauds those who do the evil. None of that has anything to do with us. The Bible never says we have to live according to the fall. You who believe in Jesus, who've come to Jesus, who've gone, man, I need some help, because I clearly ain't cutting it. That's me. I clearly ain't cutting it on my own. I need some help. I need a Savior. When you do that, you get to live according to the resurrection. Now, what happens in our lives? Do we live according to the re resurrection all the time? Sadly, no, but this text is about the people who haven't recognized a Savior. Further down in Romans, we'll start to get to what God does with his people who misbehave. But today, recognize that we need a Savior, and God is removing everybody's excuses to point fingers and throw stones. Will you pray with me? Lord Jesus, if I'm speaking excuses in my heart, help me stop and recognize it. Instead of excusing myself or self-justification, instead of trying to blame others, help me come to a spot in faith where I know that you are my Savior and everywhere I go now is holy ground. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Thank you for your text. Thank you for the word that plants your spirit deep within us, that then your spirit can then bring right back out. In your precious name, Lord Jesus, amen.